Well, as I mentioned, we are beginning a series uh, this morning on the letter to 1 Thessalonians. And as I pondered the role of letters in human history and certainly in our lives today, we would, I think, all agree that the art of letter writing has certainly lost its power in our modern age. Ours is the age of electronic communications. Ours is the age of texting, of cold, impersonal emails with preset fonts and spacings and templates. And we've lost that that ability to write letters, and we certainly have not really experienced the power in our day of handwritten letters. But that's not always been the case in, in human history. Certainly, there have been some letters that have left their mark on history and still remain today. I was doing some research on letters and came across numerous books that had, uh, that had a, a collection of different letters. They're all very fascinating. Some of the ones that caught my attention, I'll retell. One was a letter written by an 11-year-old girl. Her name is Grace Bedell to a clean-shaven Abraham Lincoln in October of 1860. Abraham Lincoln at the time was campaigning as a candidate for the Republican Party for the U.S. presidency. And Grace Bedell wrote this letter, and it remains today in the archives. The letter reads as follows. My father has just come home from the fair and brought your picture. I am a little girl, only 11 years old, but want you to be the President of the United States so very much. So I hope you won't think me too bold to write to such a great man as you are. I have four brothers. A few of them will vote for you anyway. But if you will let your whiskers grow, I will try to get the rest of them to vote for you. (laughs) You would look a great deal better because your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would convince their husbands to vote for you too. So I I think I'm going to start growing. Well, within a few weeks, Lincoln had started a beard, and he became the first U.S. president to wear whiskers while serving as president, and certainly it became his signature look. Or there was a letter to and and from Winston Churchill after he had just become prime minister in Great Britain in 1940. At that time, at the beginning of the Second World War, he was under immediate pressure to begin peace negotiations with Nazi Germany. And Churchill's private secretary, by the name of Elliot Crashaw Williams, wrote to Churchill a long letter suggesting that Britain should take advantage of its, quote, nuisance value while we have one to get the best peace terms possible. He continued, otherwise, after losing many lives and much money, we shall merely find ourselves in the same position of France or worse. I hope this doesn't sound defeatist. I'm not that, only realist. Well, Churchill responded to that letter with a letter of his own and a very short one at that. He said, or he wrote this, I am ashamed of you for writing such a letter. I return it to you to burn and to forget. And thankfully, 
Churchill did not take the advice of that secretary. The secretary, however, did not burn it, and it remains to this day to his shame. When we talk about letters, of course, the greatest letter writer of all time is indisputably the Apostle Paul, the one whose collection of works remains to this day and has had the greatest impact on human history. The 13 letters that do remain, the 13 canonical letters that we have in our Bibles today, comprise about one quarter of the literature of the New Testament. But that literature has had an scribable impact on human history. One scholar writes this, in the whole range of literature, there is nothing like St. Paul's letters. Other correspondents may be more voluminous, more elaborate, more studiously demonstrative, but none is so faithful a mirror of the writer. Another theologian wrote this, the letters of Paul portray the genius of the greatest constructive mind ever at work on the data of Christianity. Indeed, letters have the ability to capture and convey the personality of any writer. And if you have ever received special letters, perhaps it was back in the day when you were courting, or whether it was a letter from the last letter perhaps from a mother or a father, you know that these letters have the ability to convey, to, to capture and to convey the, the personality of a writer, and that, that capture remains then for posterity. And yet when this, this personality is combined with the passionate communication of truth, as we find in the letters of the Apostle Paul, we find that the letter becomes an an instrument of insurmountable or incomparable power. We see this with Paul's letters, and we see this with a letter like 1 Thessalonians. And what is more is that these letters are not mere artifacts that hang in museums or that are framed in someone's own home. What we find in Paul's letters, what we find in 1 Thessalonians is is the act of God whereby he takes this special instrument, this letter-writing power in the hands of an amazing personality like Paul. The Lord seizes that to produce a special product that captures and conveys not only the mind of the Apostle Paul, but it captures and conveys the mind and the will of God himself. And this is what we find in the letter like First Thessalonians. Our focus this morning is to introduce this letter. This will be a little bit of an unusual sermon. It doesn't really fall into an easy sermonic outline. We're going to look at the first verse, the, the salutation, the opening words that would mark any letter that was written at that time. Salutation. And these are the words that we find in this particular salutation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, turn in your Bibles there. We're going to look at verse 1 in detail this morning, and it's going to allow us to set the context for all the study that will follow in this series. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read these words. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy 
to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Well, the salutation is important for several reasons. First and foremost, it reminds us that this is a historical letter. This is not a once upon a time piece of literature. This is a letter that was written by a real person. It was written to a real real congregation of believers. And then it was written about real life circumstances. And when we come to a salutation like this, we dare not speed over it in our attempt to get to the meaningful parts. This salutation is just as inspired as what follows in the rest of this letter. These introductory words are important. They force us to spend some time considering the the historical world around this, this letter. You see, in the amazing condescension of God, he did not send us a book that is parachuted to us from heaven, but instead revealed himself to us in the very real circumstances of historical people, and in this case of historical writers and a historical church. When we study this salutation, like I said, it doesn't really fall into a very nice homiletical outline, but it it will fall into three points, because As any salutation of a Greek letter at the time, there were three ingredients to begin a letter. Three ingredients would come at the beginning of any Greco-Roman letter, and we find these in all of Paul's letters. In fact, we find these in, in other letters of the New Testament as well. And these are the three ingredients that would that would be found in in a letter. First of all, you have the identification of the writer or the writers. Secondly, you have the identification of the recipients, those to whom the letter is written. And then you have a, a greeting. And we find this in, in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, the same three ingredients. We have an identification of the writer, and we'll look at that. We have the identification of the recipients. We're going to look at that. And the identification of a, a greeting. And what's important to note here, however, is although this was a, a standard formula for beginning a letter, just similar to our Dear John formula that begins our letters today, this is not an empty formula for the Apostle Paul. In fact, as we get into this, we're going to see that Paul takes this formula. He takes this standard, this standard salutation and he fills it with some rich theological content. He crafts this introduction in a distinctively Christian way, and it's going to be amazing to see that as we look at this. Let's begin, first of all, with the first ingredient, the the writer or writers. Let's look at this first of all, the writers. These three names, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, would have been very well known to the Thessalonian congregation. All three of these men played a role in the establishment of the church in that particular city. So let's look at each one of these. And of course, when we begin with the first name, Paul, we have to spend a little bit more time here. We know a lot more about Paul than the other two men. Let's look at Paul first. His name comes first in 
in this salutation, the very first word of this, this Greek letter, Paulus was his Greek name. It is found first, and it appears first because of his seniority and because of the fact that really the, the composition of this letter is his responsibility. And behind his name, there is a lot that, that, that we must recall as we begin our, our study of this letter. Who was Paul? Well, Paul was born as a citizen of one of the great cities of the ancient world. He was born a citizen of the city of Tarsus. Tarsus didn't rise to the same level of fame as Rome or Athens, but Tarsus was nonetheless one of the great learning cities of the ancient world. Paul was a citizen of that city, and that in itself would have given Paul considerable privilege. But Paul possessed an even greater status. He possessed Roman citizenship. He was born into a family that possessed the rights uh, as those of the very residents of the city of Rome itself. Paul did not acquire this citizenship through payment, as could be done. He did not acquire it through a bribe, as some had done. He did not even acquire it through some special service to the Roman government. He was born a free Roman citizen. As such, Roman citizens were authorized to vote. They were exempt from military service. They were not to be subjected to any form of humiliating treatment, especially in forms of punishment. And if they were arrested for any kind of criminal activity, they could appeal their case all the way up to the court of Caesar himself. Now, because Paul was born a Roman citizen, it meant that his father or his grandfather before him must have acquired this citizenship some way. How that happened, we simply do not know. All we know is that Paul, born in Tarsus, also was born automatically one of the most privileged persons in the ancient world. He was born a Roman citizen. Now, more important than that was Paul's Jewish upbringing. In his home, he would not have been called Paulus. He would have been called Saul. His ancestors were so devout that they even kept track of their lineage. Paul himself says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a very small tribe, and because of its location, had this tendency to be absorbed by the tribe of Judah. But what is amazing is at this point, even after the exile and the return to the land of Israel, and and many centuries later, Paul and his family is still able to recount their lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. That would not have been an easy thing to do for other Benjaminites unless your family was exceedingly devout. Indeed, Paul's family was The members of this family were not just Israelites or Jews in a general sense. Paul identifies himself elsewhere. We know this in Philippians and 2 Corinthians. He identifies himself as a Hebrew. 
Now, you might think that that's not a big deal. He was Jewish. No, that is a big deal because only those who typically resided within the land of Israel itself would call themselves Hebrews. But the Jews who existed in the diaspora, the Jews who existed in places like Tarsus, which was many hundred miles to the north of Israel, they were known as Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who had become influenced by Greek society. Now, we would typically expect that from someone like Paul living in Tarsus. But the fact that he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews indicates that his family had maintained such strict and devout practices that even outside of the land of Israel, they were known as Hebrews. Paul was undoubtedly raised very strictly and very well in these Jewish traditions up until the age of about 13 when he was sent to Jerusalem to further his education. And there he was educated by one of the most famous rabbis in the day, Rabbi Gamaliel. To this very privileged training, Paul added his own abundance of zeal. At a very young age, he was able to attain to the status of a Pharisee, which meant that at a very young age, Paul was committed to a life of strict separation. Separation from any threat of contamination, both moral impurity or ceremonial impurity, which meant that from his earliest days, he would have had a hatred for the Gentiles. He excelled in this beyond his fellow students, and he even came to enjoy respect from the Sanhedrin, which was the highest organ of authority for the Jewish people. He enjoyed unique social rights. He received the best, most strictest religious education. He displayed the acutest levels of discipline and intellect and walked among the elite of Jewish society. He was a man that was destined to leave a mark on the Jewish people. In his early years, probably the first three decades of his life, he was known as one who hated the person of Jesus and hated anyone who claimed to believe that this Jesus was the promised Messiah. His first appearance on the pages of biblical history comes in Acts chapter 7 as the historian Luke describes him as the overseer of Stephen's execution. Entrusted with the authority of the Sanhedrin, Paul led Judaism's early pogrom against the church. He not only imprisoned both men and women, any who would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but he also admits to the fact that he was responsible for the death of others beyond Stephen. His hatred for this new sect was so significant that it even motivated him to leave the boundaries of the nation of, uh, of the land of Israel to pursue believers in Jesus to other cities. And of course, it is that pursuit that led him to that fateful day. 
He pursued a particular group of believers to the city of Damascus, 140 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And as he neared the city, you know this story, as he neared the city at midday, the hottest time of the day, he was suddenly driven to the ground by a light that shone brighter than the midday desert sun. The light emanated from the very person of the glorified Jesus, the one Paul so hated. As one historian wrote, it was as if the good shepherd had heard the cries of the trembling flock and went forth to face the wolf on their behalf. We read the account of what happened in this fateful day, in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. And if we take all of those details, both Luke's own narrative of Paul's meeting with Jesus, as well as Paul's own testimony recorded in Acts chapter 22 and 26, we can put together this kind of narrative. And when I and my traveling partners had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness. Although Paul's eyes were temporarily blinded by the glory of the resurrected Jesus, the blindness of his heart had been forever removed. Glory had shone in his heart to give him the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this encounter with the resurrected, glorified Jesus changed his life forever. The one he so hated, he now confessed as his Lord. Now, don't miss that. Any zealous Jew would reserve the term kurios for only one person, Yahweh. But in that encounter on the road to Damascus, notice his question to the one whose face he saw. Who are you, Lord? Mark the moment of his conversion. And he who was formerly himself a blasphemer of Jesus and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, right then and there was shown mercy. He who was the chief of sinners now knew that Christ came into the world to save people just like him. All the privileges and accomplishments that he once so prized he now dismissed as vanity, as rubbish, in view of the surpassing value of knowing 
Jesus Christ, his Lord. Paul had experienced grace. And if such grace could justify a sinner like him and make him a new creature and give him peace with God, no one else need despair. This is the one who pens this letter to the Thessalonians, to a group of those who were generally Gentile, former pagans, as we shall see. Now, just a note here about the the plural authorship. We see that the list of names here suggests three authors, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. We're going to look at those two men in just a moment, but let me say this. Some have suggested perhaps all three of them have an active role in writing. Well, that is true to some degree. It is not vain that Paul includes their names. In fact, it was a common practice of Paul to include the names of those who were with him, who undoubtedly were part of Paul's own ruminating over what to write. So, for example, when he writes to the Corinthians, the first letter, he includes the name Sosthenes, Paul and Sosthenes. And in many of his other writings, he includes the name Timothy, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Such names were included not because they took turns with the quill on the, uh, on the papyrus sheet, but rather such names were included because they were names that were both known to the recipients and they were those who stood with Paul as he prayed for these believers, as he considered and contemplated what to write with them. They stood in full affirmation and agreement of the contents of the letter. And it shows Paul's desire not to see himself or portray himself as some kind of independent lone ranger, but rather shows his propensity to always include the team. He wrote on behalf of an entire ministry team. He wrote on behalf of others who also had a role in the spiritual formation of this congregation. Nonetheless, Paul was still the writer. We see, for example, we're going to get there in, a, in, in several weeks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Notice Paul moving from the plural to the singular when he says this in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Find the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 27. Paul moves to the singular to show he's the one responsible. But nonetheless, there are these others who stand with him. And the second one here, one of those who stood with him is Silvanus. Silvanus. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, Silvanus would have been uh, the name, the the Latin cognomen is what it was called, uh, the Latin name for this individual. We know him as Silas. Luke always refers to him as Silas. Paul always refers to him in this Latin formality, Silvanus. We first read about Silvanus or Silas in Acts chapter 15. We're not going to turn there yet. We'll turn there in a few moments. But in Acts chapter 15, we, we are introduced by, by Luke to this individual named Silas. He, he was an important Jewish member, a leader of the church of Jerusalem. 
And in Acts chapter 15, we have this narrative of the Jerusalem council. And after the the elders and the apostles deliberate on how to respond to the threat against the church posed by the Judaizers, they come to an agreement, they write a letter to Gentile churches, and they entrust that letter to the hands of one of their own, a man named Silas or Silvanus. And at the end of Acts chapter 15, we read that he takes this letter, he and another man take this letter to the church in Antioch to read that Gentiles were full members of the single body of Christ, full members of the church in full fellowship with Jewish believers as well. Silas takes this letter, reads it to them, and we read there in Luke's account that Silas himself is is amazed at the wonderful work of grace that is happening there in Antioch, where Paul had been ministering along with Barnabas. We also know from elsewhere that Silas possessed the gift of prophecy. He was one who could utter authoritative words of God. And like Paul, we also read that he was a Roman citizen. So when when Paul begins plans for his second missionary journey, right after the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15, Paul begins his plans for the next excursion to, to preach the gospel in Gentile lands. Barnabas departs from him. There was a, a falling out between the two men, and Silas becomes the perfect substitute for Barnabas as one of the key leaders of this ministry team. Silas continues on then with Paul on this second missionary journey, departing from Antioch, going through what we would call modern-day Turkey, ministering the word of God to the churches that Paul had previously planted on his first missionary journey, and then is called together with Paul to begin a new ministry in the continent of Europe. He was with Paul when Paul received that vision of the Macedonian man in Acts chapter 16, that vision in which he heard the words, come over and help. And so Silas goes with Paul to Macedonia, preaches the gospel together with Paul in Philippi, and then preaches the gospel together with Paul in Thessalonica, and then continues on with Paul after that ministry to Corinth. But after that, we lose track of Silas. Luke never returns to describe Silas after Acts chapter 18 and the latter part of Paul's second missionary journey. However, there is one little hint that we get of this man in a different letter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we find that Silas is now serving with Peter as an amanuensis. In other words, Silas would have recorded Peter's words as he dictated them, the letter of First Peter. We see another name mentioned here. It's the name Timothy. We know more about Timothy, of course, than we do about Silas or Silvanus. Timothy is placed last in order of names because of his subordinate status. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't possess the, the authority that came with that kind of giftedness. He certainly wasn't an apostle. He was a helper. He would have been the one who probably was engaged in baptizing converts. 
He would have been engaged in helping plan the, the travels and organize the details. He would have been involved in, 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 in the teaching and catechizing of the new converts, but he was not the primary gospel preacher like Paul or Silas. His name first appears in Acts 16. Right after Silas is introduced by Luke at the end of the Jerusalem council, and as Paul begins that second missionary journey, we see that Timothy's name first appears as Paul and Silas headed through modern-day Turkey, headed through Galatia. They pick up this young disciple by the name of Timothy. There in Acts 16, verses 1 to 3, we read that Timothy was the son of a Gentile father who is probably pagan and a Jewish mother. Because of the father's Gentile background, the the, the Gentiles hated circumcision. And, And so Timothy wasn't circumcised, even though as the son of a Jewess, he would have been considered Jewish. In order that Timothy not be a scourge to the, to the Jews that, to whom Paul would preach the gospel. Paul then has, Timothy as a young man, has him circumcised, and then Timothy then continues on his way together with Paul and Silas. Timothy had heard of the promises of the Messiah through his mother and grandmother. We read of that in, in uh, 2 T- Timothy We read of how Timothy learned about the messianic promises, but it was Paul on the first missionary journey when he goes through southern Galatia who preaches the gospel in the cities of Lystra and Derbe. It is Paul who brought Timothy the message that Jesus was the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. Timothy's name isn't mentioned on that first missionary journey of Acts 13 and 14. He's only mentioned on Paul's second missionary journey. But Paul makes a reference, we won't go there, in 2 Timothy that suggests that Timothy had been there when Paul had been stoned on that first missionary journey in the city of Lystra. He had been an early recipient of Paul's preaching And so when Paul comes back through the area on his second missionary journey, he picks up Timothy as an assistant. Timothy became Paul's best substitute. When Paul couldn't go, Timothy was a surrogate. We're going to look at that more when we get to 1 Thessalonians 3. Let me read just a few words from 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, where we read of Paul's heart for this young disciple. 1 Thessalonians 3 says this, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Though Timothy was an assistant, notice Paul's defect. He calls Timothy our brother and even more Amazingly, he says, and God's fellow worker. We'll get to that in 1 Thessalonians 3. It's a remarkable statement that uh, has caused a lot of, of, of head scratching because who can be God's fellow worker? Well, Paul describes Timothy as one such man. We'll get there. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, those are 
the ones who are behind this letter, the writers of this letter. And by the way, one more thing to note about this. Notice what's absent from this introduction of the writers. We read in most of Paul's other writings a title, at least for him, but here it's missing. There is no reference to him as an apostle. As we see in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, no reference to him as an apostle. No reference to, to, to Paul as a prisoner, as, as we find in, in Philemon, for example. No reference to Paul as a slave, like we find in Romans or in Philippians. It is only here in 1 Thessalonians and then in 2 Thessalonians that Paul never refers to himself with a title. And that's intentional because as we read these letters, we find that there is such a warm relationship between Paul and these believers that no title was necessary. Paul has some of the most warmest, endearing terms and descriptions of these believers in both First and Second Thessalonians to show us that a remarkable relationship existed between him and this young church. Let's look at that church now. Let's look at the second component, the recipients. The recipients. We have the writers, primarily Paul, but now we have the recipients. And Paul describes them with these words, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do want you to turn back to Acts chapter 17 for just a moment, because it is there where we find the organization or establishment of this church in the ancient Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Now, a little bit of history before Acts chapter 17. As I said, at the end of Acts chapter 15, after the Jerusalem council, Paul prepares for his second missionary journey. That would have begun in the year AD 49. In the fall of AD 49, it would have been impossible to travel by ship because the maritime lanes were closed during the winter months, at least for major travel. So Paul sets out by foot and he travels through the areas that he had previously evangelized on his first missionary journey. So he goes back through Galatia and we read of that in the early part of chapter 16. And then we read that he tries to minister in Ephesus. He cannot get there. He's prevented. And that leads him to the city of Troas where he receives the vision that says, come over and help. And so he gets on a boat that would just cross a little bit of water to go to the continent of Europe, to the province of Macedonia. And in the second part of Acts chapter 16, we read of his ministry in the city of Philippi. And he has a significant ministry there, the first major city of his ministry on his second missionary journey in the continent of Europe. But then beginning in Acts chapter 17, we read of Paul's ministry on his second missionary journey after Philippi. Let me read how Luke describes it. Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they had traveled, this is after Philippi, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and they, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a large number of leading women. Thessalonica was known as a city with remarkable women in leadership. It's just part of Macedonian history. Several important names are, are connected with that city. So it's known that women in that area in particular were able to rise to significant lengths. And Luke even records that here. A number of leading women joined the church. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, that's Paul and Silas, the chief preachers, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released him or them. And then verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now this text is important. We're going to read about this pledge that Jason makes later on in 1 Thessalonians. Essentially what happened was that the city authorities come to Jason who had hosted Paul and his team and essentially said, if you don't pay us a sum of money to promise that these rabble-rousers will not return to our city, you will forfeit your belongings, your money. Jason was a man of means, would have paid a bond to ensure that during the reign of the particular magistrates, their their, their season of, of authority, Paul and Silas could not return to Thessalonica. Well, that's how the, the church was planted. And after that, as we read, Paul then goes to Berea, spends a, a few weeks in Berea, is driven from Berea, goes to Athens, spends a, a few weeks in Athens, and then goes to Corinth, still on his second missionary journey. And Acts chapter 18 then is devoted to Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. By that time, it would have been around 8050, the late 8050, by the time he enters Corinth. And there in Corinth, just a few months after Paul had been in Thessalonica, he writes 1 Thessalonians. And it's going to be important for us, I'm going to come back to this at various points to remind us that 1 Thessalonians, this letter that we're going to see, there's a lot of doctrine in this letter, was written a mere six months after the church had been established. A mere six months. And we're going to see that sometimes we who have been believers for years say, I don't want doctrine, give me practical stuff. But we're going to see that this young church of six months was already dealing with very significant doctrinal issues. Now, how does Paul describe them in this salutation? Let's look at this quickly. 
He calls them the church of the Thessalonians. Now, we know the term church as a, as a Christian term, ecclesia, ecclesia. But in Paul's day, that term church, ecclesia, didn't have Christian connotation. In fact, the term really meant assembly. Assembly, it referred to any gathering or assembly of citizens that had been summoned together by a herald. That's what commonly happened. And again, if you look in Acts chapter 19, I won't turn there, but Acts chapter 19, verse 32, you read of an assembly that is called in Ephesus. Now, the assembly in Ephesus is not at all Christian. They're worshipers of Diana, and they're called together in response to Paul's preaching there. They're called a Ecclesia, an assembly that gathered in the theater. So the term, the term ecclesia doesn't have, at this point, Christian connotations. It was simply a term to describe a, a gathering of people that had come together from the masses for a, a common purpose, for a common focus. Yet, this term so wonderfully fits the organization of early Christian congregations that ecclesia or church fit it well. This term ecclesia demonstrates separateness. It, it demonstrates a group of people who have been called out of the masses to gather for a particular purpose. It also shows community essence. They're not just called individually. They were called as an assembly. And Paul uses this term to describe this assembly, this gathering in Thessalonica. They shared the same beliefs. It, it, this term fit the, the community of, of believers in Jesus so well. They were the gathered people of God. They were called out of, but also called into. And so this term came to be a perfect one to describe what Christians are. They're not individuals. They're not out there on their, by their own. Believers in Jesus are known as those who have been called together by a herald, together into the same society. But as I said, this term, assembly of the Thessalonians, wouldn't have had any special significance if it were not for what follows. Notice that after this civic identity, there is a spiritual one. Notice the phrase that follows, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is no simple, no regular kind of assembly that had gathered there in Thessalonica. This was a transcendent one, a spiritual one, that is marked by this description, and it's a fascinating description. Paul describes them as having assembled in God the Father. And this particular phrase points to one important reality. The Thessalonians in general, the Gentiles that had become part of this assembly, would have been pagan. They would have worshipped a plethora of, of gods. And Paul describes them as in God the Father, singular. It immediately describes the fact that they, had, they who had once worshipped the pantheon of gods now worshipped one God whom is designated as Father. Secondly, they're not only in God the Father, but they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, there were some Jews who had joined the church. 
Now, this designation as being in the Lord Jesus Christ separates them from the Jewish synagogue. You see, the Jewish synagogue could also be called a spiritual gathering in God the Father because the Jews also recognized God as their father. But what is unique here is that they are called those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, automatically distinguishing this gathering from the synagogue that met down the street. And what is further important to note here is the designation that is given for Jesus. Notice this Christology that Paul brings here. In his very first letter, this first letter to the Thessalonians would have been his first letter, A.D. 50, 51 perhaps, Paul calls Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. These were amazing designations. First of all, the term Lord is his divine title. It is a divine title. No Jew would have ever referred to any man, any ordinary man as Lord. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And Paul calls this Jesus Lord. The name Jesus is his human name. Matthew one twenty one, as we're well familiar with, says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is his historical name, his human name. And then you have the title Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. This assembly there in Thessalonica is described as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. One more remarkable thing about this introduction. There is just one preposition that leads this phrase. Did you notice that? Now, you might not think much about it, but in the Greek language, this is significant. Paul does not write, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have, but the fact that Paul only has the preposition in once associates these two persons, associates them so closely in and activity that they can hardly be separated. The very early stage, the very early testimony to Paul's recognition of the divine nature of Jesus Christ and the fact that there is one God, though multiple in essence to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a final note here about the greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. What's amazing about this designation, like I said, is that it's not the typical one. The typical one was to use the word karain, greetings, When you have a moment, turn back to Acts 15, verse 23, or to James chapter 1, verse 1. Acts 15, 23, James 1, verse 1. You'll see the word greetings there. That was the standard Greek greeting, karain, greetings, karain. But Paul departs from the norm, as he does in all of his letters. He doesn't use the word karain, greetings. He takes a derivative form, That was not typically found in any kind of salutation. He uses the word charis, not charain, 
charis. And charis is the Greek word for grace. You see, Paul has moved beyond just a simple formulaic greetings to insert theology even at this point in his letters. Grace. Grace. This word is far more theological. In this one word, Paul conveys his entire understanding of God's favor shown through Jesus Christ in all its freeness and universality. It is, as one commentator puts it, a word which uniquely describes the love of God, spontaneous, beautiful, and unearned, a work in Jesus Christ for the salvation of all sinful men. This is the word Paul chooses, grace to you. Not merely greetings, grace. The second word is the word peace. Now, in Hebrew letters, you'd find the introduction, shalom, peace. And this Hebrew word, is, it speaks more than what we might think of today as merely the absence of strife. Here, the Hebrew word, shalom, speaks of prosperity, a holistic sense of prosperity, and in particular, spiritual prosperity, One commentator writes this, this peace is the effect of the reception of grace. The soul health which comes when grace makes one's heart right with God and thus dispels all worry and fear. This is what Paul wished for the Thessalonians. This was no mere greetings. This was a full theological desire, a prayer on Paul's part, that these Thessalonians who had already experienced grace and the peace that comes from it would continue to experience it more and more. In fact, his whole letter, all that follows from 1 verse 2 to chapter 5 verse 28 can be summed up in Paul's intent to convey to these Thessalonians and to us today grace and peace. God's unmerited favor, his universal love, as well as the life that comes from it. That is what this letter is about, and that is what Paul wishes for the Thessalonians and for us today. As we then continue this study, I trust, and it'll be my prayer, that all of us would come to know God's grace and his peace in a greater, more manifold manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your chosen servant, the Apostle Paul whose life so radically demonstrates your mercy and grace and peace on even the vilest of sinners. To think that the one who is responsible for the death of early Christian martyrs, one who rabidly blasphemed the name of your son Jesus, then became a letter writer to leave us with these pages that capture your mind, your truth, 
your grace and your peace to us. We ask that as we study this letter further, that it would impact our lives just as Paul intended it for the Thessalonians and as you ultimately intended it for all of your children. May the study impact our lives, transform us so that we would experience this grace and peace in ways we have never experienced before. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.